Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have one, you can probably find one in a pew in front of you. And uh, we are going to be looking at some more instruction to the church on how the church is to deal with elders. Uh, Last uh, time we were here in 1 Timothy, we looked at... uh, Um, feeding the ox and just the church's responsibility to honor elders and esteem them highly and in some cases even support them financially that they might perform the work that God has called them to. And this morning we come to um, just uh, some more principles. A lot of times when you look at the scriptures and you you see the qualifications for an elder, and I remember when we were going through chapter 3 and some of you were thinking, man, that's pretty scary. Those standards are pretty high. And and uh, Titus chapter 1 also addresses them. And and you think, boy, the being an elder is, is far different than just being a guy that everybody kind of likes. You must be a very godly person, a disciplined person, a person who has patterns in their lives of godliness, And this is what God requires that all elders be. He's to be a man who has learned to practice godly disciplines in prayer, in study and meditation upon the Word of God, in teaching, in preaching. He is a man who has learned to faithfully serve in the church with the gifts that God has given him, especially those of teaching. We saw that as over and over emphasized in this book. When you look at his life, you see that he is a a man who is above reproach. That uh, his marriage is a marriage that uh, gives glory to God. You see him loving his wife as Christ loved the church. You see him um, nurturing his wife and cherishing his wife and loving his wife like his own body. You see him training up children, uh, children who are under control with all dignity and not accused of rebellion or dissipation. You see a man who has a balance in his life between family and work and ministry and his personal walk with the Lord. He is an example, in other words, and this is what all elders are to be. And we learned in verses 17 and 18 that the church is to honor these elders, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. And now we move on to several other issues in verses 19 through 25. And even though elders are... are to be very godly and to, and are to be held to the highest standards, they're still sinners. They are still fallible. They still sin individually. And sometimes the elder board as a whole may make a very bad decision. Maybe be with good intentions, but a bad decision nonetheless. They struggle with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life like anyone else. And sometimes a man who is appointed to the office of an elder gets entangled in a sin. By little degrees, he is deviated from the standard he knows is right. He maybe begins to um, compromise by small degrees and then greater degrees, and pretty soon he is in the clutches of sin. And... As the scriptures say, be sure your sins will find you out. And what is whispered in secret soon becomes shouted from the rooftops, and that elder and his sin is exposed. It is exposed like ugly cancer, and then there is a scandal. And so often other elders, for fear of the consequences of exposing a fellow elder are fearful of confronting that elder. You know, maybe they're fearful of splitting the church. Maybe they're fearful of the uh, reproach it will bring upon the name of Christ or upon the elders as a whole. Maybe they have a close relationship and are great friends with that elder who is in sin. And so they neglect to do what the scriptures call them to do, being paralyzed by their fear. People in the congregation are usually no different. In fact, it's even worse for them. They may know an elder is in sin or be pretty sure he's in sin, and, and they know they should probably go and talk to that elder. They also know they're supposed to respect them and submit to them and obey them and highly esteem them, and there's this conflict in their mind, and they're thinking to themselves, surely the other elders can see this guy's sin. 
Why aren't they doing anything about it? And pretty soon they can wonder to themselves, well, maybe all the elders are doing this. Because it seems so obvious to me. What is the church to do when an elder or a pastor or an overseer or a shepherd, we've learned that they're all one in the same office, falls into sin? Well, the text before us tells us this morning and teaches us some very practical things about discipline in general, but especially about how to deal with elders who are in sin. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 19 and follow along as I read through verse 25. Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also... The deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, from this text, you should come away today with six principles, six principles for dealing with elders in the church. Some of these principles are specifically directed at the elders themselves, but some at you as a congregation. So let's look at these one at a time. The first is, when is it legitimate for you to accuse an elder? Look at verse 19 again. Paul says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Paul is speaking to Timothy, who is one of a group of elders at the church of Ephesus. And it's likely that... Either Timothy wrote to Paul with concerns about some elders who were in sin, or maybe others talked to Paul about it and said, Timothy wasn't dealing with elders in sin, we don't know. But obviously, Paul felt concerned enough to address the issue head-on in the text, probably because Timothy was not following through with this like he should have been. Paul's instruction is, do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, don't ever receive an accusation. He doesn't say that. He says, do not receive an accusation except. So there is a time when you, as non-elders, people in the congregation, can legitimately accuse an elder of sin. Notice also that it is implied that the accusation would be brought before the elders. He's saying, Timothy, you as an elder do not receive an accusation against any of the elders except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So it implies that if somebody were to go to accuse an elder, they would have to go through the elders to do that as far as a testimony of two or three witnesses is concerned. Now, this does not mean that the rest of what the scriptures say concerning confronting a brother in sin would be set aside. We'll get to that in a minute. But the principle that is uh, being taught here is the same principle taught in Deuteronomy 19. If you want, you can turn to Deuteronomy 19 and see that Paul is taking the same exact instruction from the Word of God in Deuteronomy 19, and he is applying it to the church. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 19. This is what Moses says when he speaks to the congregation of Israel in the wilderness. He says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, 
Then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is false, a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. This is also taught in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. The whole point that is being taught here is pretty simple. Sometimes people don't like other people. Sometimes people want to get other people in trouble. And so they want to accuse them to discredit them and to bring pain upon them out of a vengeful and bitter spirit. And so in order to protect from that happening, what was to happen is a person was to make sure that they had two or three witnesses. Now, these witnesses were not necessarily witnesses who saw the person committing the bad deed, but they would be the witnesses who witnessed the confrontation of the person who accused them of that deed, and then they would go before the judges. Well, instead of being Israel... It's the church. Instead of being judges and or priests and Levites and those called to serve in the in the offices of the Old Testament, it's elders, those called to serve in the office of overseer in the church. And so he says, make sure that uh, you have two or three witnesses, just for the protection of the person being accused. Now, you can wonder why this is. It's pretty clean, clear cut, and clean here that. If you are a leader and you are preaching and teaching the word of God like the scriptures say that elders are to be doing over and over again, as we've seen it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, if you are a person who is proclaiming God's word and proclaiming it fearlessly and living it without compromise, you will be the target for Satan's accusations. Satan is the accuser, and you will be his bullseye, and he will want to kill you and ruin your reputation with accusation. And because of this, it's very important that before an elder is accused, that there is two or three witnesses. But Paul is not saying just bypass everything else the scripture says. He is trying to take what the scriptures do say and apply it to elders. And I want to show you this. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, the famous text uh, on church discipline, probably the most well-known. Matthew 18, verse 15. Look at verse 15. Matthew 18. Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. In private. Don't go tell it to other people. Don't go blabbing around the church. Don't go, oh, you know, I heard so-and-so did this. You know, I was watching him. Did you, did you see that? Yeah, whoo, my boy's in sin. No. You go in private and talk to that person. Talk to that person. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, there's the same principle, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, that is the assembly of all those who come together and profess to know Christ. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's what you're supposed to do. Now that's pretty scary. Then he says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, that, that implies what? That the church has reached out to that person to encourage that person to repent. Let him be to you as a Gentile, a very despised group of people to the Jews, and a tax collector, a traitor, an outsider, an unbeliever, an apostate. 
Here we see the steps that need to take place when a brother or sister falls into any sin. And these steps are no different than when dealing with an elder. First, you go and confront them in private. If they repent, you have won your brother or sister and you don't have to do anything after that. A lot of times we think of church discipline as the final phases, but that's not it. Anytime you go to anybody and say, you know, this is something you could work on in your life. And they say, you know, you're right. That's church discipline. Most church discipline happens and we don't ever know about it. It's common. It's going on all the time in the church. It's the normal, standard way of admonishing and encouraging one another to follow Christ. But if they do not repent, then you take a couple people with you, two or three witnesses who can verify that they have been confronted. Now, again, these people are not necessarily people who saw them do the sin, but they are witnessing the confrontation. And... It's interesting, when you're dealing with people who are in sin, usually they don't deny it. It's so obvious and so evident that they are in sin that they say, well, yeah, I know this, but, you know, I'm not going to turn from it. So you take them with you. Now, if they don't repent after that, the third step is to tell it to the church. And, of course, you would go to the elders to do that so that they could tell it to the church. And if they still don't repent after the church has reached out to them and tried to encourage them, then you just consider them as an unbeliever. Now, when you think of something like this, to a lot of people, because most churches in America are not committed to obeying all the word of God, when you, they hear something like this, a lot of people go, whoa, how could you be so unloving? No. How could you be so unloving as to not take every effort to turn a brother or sister in Christ from their sin. That is unloving. That is to show hatred towards somebody and hatred towards God who commands you to confront people and turn them from their sins. Sin and living in sin and rebellion against God is never a loving thing. And don't let anybody fool you into thinking that it is. But the scriptures give us five primary reasons why we do church discipline. And I want to give you those now before we work through the text, because it is these things that are undergirding what Paul is saying to Timothy about elders. The first reason why we do church discipline is to restore the sinning person to obedience and fellowship to the body. This is obvious. This is obvious. That's why Matthew 18 says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Won your brother what? Won him back to obedience and following Christ and the fellowship of the saints. Of course, that is the primary reason to bring that person to repentance. But there's another reason, and that is to maintain purity in the church. Maintain purity in the church. Church discipline, regardless of what step, is to help the church be holy. Sin and rebellion breeds more sin and rebellion. You have this person over here in some sin, and if the church does not deal with that person, that person starts talking to other people, they think, well, I could do that sin too because they're doing that sin and they are getting in trouble, so I could do it and I could not get in trouble. And pretty soon it spreads in the church. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump when he was addressing the church at Corinth who was not dealing with the person who was caught in immorality and that person was being an example of rebellion against God and they were thinking they were doing the loving thing by not saying anything. Actually, they were showing hatred towards that person, hatred towards the rest of the church and hatred towards God. And he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then he said this, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves and do not associate with any so-called brother if he be an immoral person and not even to eat with such a one. The church is not to allow people living in defiance against God to remain in its midst. God wants his church pure and holy and undefiled. We do church discipline to keep the church pure. Third, we do church discipline to maintain the church's witness in the world. Another reason is we have to have a witness, don't we? 
Of course we do. That's why we're here. That's why God has left us on earth so we can witness to people. And the church's witness is always the greatest when the holiness of the church is the greatest. The church's light shines the brightest and its salt is the saltiest when it is the furthest away from sin and the closest to God. That's what holiness is. And we are called to be holy, for God is holy. This is why Jesus rebuked the church at Pergamon and the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Do you remember the, those two churches and how Jesus rebuked them and said, I have this against you? And do you remember why he had things against those two churches? It was because they were tolerating two things, false doctrine and immorality. And Jesus doesn't just say, I have this against you. You know, you have, you know, accepted the woman Jezebel and her immorality or the teaching of the Nicolaitans and their immorality. He doesn't just say, I have this against you. He says, listen, I am going to make war with you. And Jesus is talking about the church. I will make war with you. And I will remove your lampstand, that is, snuff out your light, because you were tolerating the immorality in your midst. So it is also to maintain a witness. We have the strongest witness in the world when we're most distinct from the world. Our witness grows dim when people come here and go, you know, the people in that church, they're just like anybody at the workplace. They're no different. I mean, these people are lying and these people are swearing and these people are getting drunk and these people are in immorality. I mean, why would I go to church? They're just like us. Four. Another reason we practice church discipline is to cause the congregation to see the consequences of sin so that they might be fearful of sinning. We see that in our text in verse 20, which we're working towards, where our text says that you are to rebuke those elders in sin, and the text gives the reason so that the rest may be fearful of sinning. That is one of the reasons. Church discipline is to make you fear sinning. Turn to Deuteronomy 13. This is, again, another Old Testament principle. Deuteronomy 13. Turn there. Paul is just taking principles out of the Old Testament, just like Jesus did, and applying them to the church. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. Now, this is amazing here. This is probably something a lot of you have never even considered. If your brother, your mother's son, your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul. Now, just stop right there. Right here, Moses has purposely picked the closest and dearest relationships he can think of. Notice what he says, your brother. I mean, some of us are so close to our brothers, or your mother's son, that's a stepson, or your own son or your own daughter or the wife you cherish or the friend whom you love as your own soul, like David and Jonathan. And if one of those people whom you love to just the utmost degree, notice the text, entice you secretly saying, let's go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you 
shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then notice all of this, the purpose. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. People, this tells us something very important and you don't want to miss this. When God's holiness is at stake, He expects you to put all relationships aside. Nothing can stand in the way of God's holiness. It is the most important thing in the church. And notice what he's saying here in the Old Testament. You, could you imagine stoning your cherished wife, your son, your daughter? What is God asking here? He's asking this, that his people would love him more than any other human relationship. That's what he's saying here in this text. You are never to side with anyone ever against the Lord. I can tell you from personal experience that this is one of the hardest things you could ever do. I've had to do this. Where you have somebody very close to you, very dear to you, maybe a family member, maybe a close friend in the ministry, and you know they aren't doing what is right, and you have to stand up against them. It is miserable, but absolutely necessary. And you cannot love men more than God. Do you fear God and God's word more than anything else? That's what the text is saying. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, when he said, Listen, you must be willing to hate your father and mother, your brother and your sister. You must be willing to forsake them all. Not only that, you must be willing to give up all your possessions. Not only that, you must be willing to die for me, or you cannot be my disciple. God is looking for people who will choose him above every other relationship, period, no matter what. It's only devotion to the Lord of that degree that would have a husband or wife or best friend stoned to death in the Old Testament or in the New Testament brought before the church. It shows us that devotion to God and His holiness is of the utmost importance. This should cause all of us to fear. Do you remember what happened in Ananias? To Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? You know, the couple who decided when the church was needing money that they were going to sell their property, and they did. But they were going to tell everybody to that they gave all the price of the property. Well... You didn't have to. It's a free will offering. But they wanted to do that so people would go, Oh, you are so godly. You, you were just such, so sacrificial. You gave all the price of your property. And so he came and lied to the Holy Spirit. His wife came and lied to the Holy Spirit. And God struck them dead. Now, I want you to know, God was not trying to restore them. He was making an example of them. That was the first case of church discipline. And he did that to cause something to happen. You know what it was? Well, let me tell you. Acts 5.11 says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. In other words, God struck them dead so that the rest would be fearful of sinning. The fifth reason why we do church discipline is to show love to God by obeying His Word. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. What are Jesus' commandments? To practice church discipline. You can't show love to God. I don't care what people say if you're disobeying His Word. You can't show love to somebody else by tolerating their rebellion. I don't care 
what they say or how they argue or what they try and reason against you because they usually try and teach you that, well, if you expose my sin or if you confront me or you're being mean and unloving and divisive, that is a bunch of malarkey. No, the best thing to do, the most loving thing to do every time, all the time, is to obey the Word of God in relationship to each other. And so even if the Scriptures did not give us the other four reasons, if it just said God said to do it, we would do it and do it faithfully because God says so. But He gives us those other reasons as well. So no accusation is to be brought before the elders except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there is an exception, there is a time, and the church is to do it. Now how should you avoid showing partiality? Or, or what happens um, when, when somebody needs to be confronted, what is the process that finally gets them to the place where the rest of the church might find out and so they would know how to deal with that person and not respect them and not treat them as an elder? Well, he says in verse 20, look there. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Verse 20 follows on the heels of verse 19. Make sure that you follow these other steps. They would be confronted, be confronted by two or three. Those two and three and the one confronting would come before the elders. They would explain the sin if the elders determined that, yes, that elder had been continuing and was continuing in sin. Notice the plan of attack. Rebuke. Rebuke. That is what the church must do. Rebuke means to bring to light someone's sin, to expose a person's rebellion against God, and to call them to repentance. And notice where it is to be done. In the presence of all, every, and each person. The phrase, in the presence of all, means in front of the entire assembly of the church. So if you know an elder... And you know an elder is in sin, you have a responsibility to fear God more than the elder. Go to that elder and confront them in private and encourage them to turn from their sins. If they make excuses, you know, if they blame shift, if they try and minimize their carnality, if they refuse to repent and try and justify it, then you take two or three more. If they still don't do it, you bring it before the elders. Then the elders... If they find out that that person has been in rebellion and will not repent, they will bring him before the church and rebuke him in the presence of all. This will, in effect, remove him from office. It will cause other people not to highly esteem him and not to submit to him because everybody who knows he's no longer above reproach, he's no longer qualified to be an elder, and he will be removed from that position. And if he doesn't repent, removed from the church, and he will be treated like a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Now the thought of confronting an elder is a very scary thought to many. I mean, it's scary if you're an elder. It's scary because of the consequences that might happen, and nobody likes conflict. And elders have a lot of influence in the church, and we just don't want to cause ripples, and we don't want the church to have to go through scandals and things like that, and so we can be hesitant And Paul knows this, so that's why he says what he does in verse 21, which is our next point. You should be unbiased in your dealing with elders who are in sin. Notice what he says. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing from a spirit of partiality. This is the strongest statement in the whole book. This is very similar to that statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead as is appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Well, here, instead of preach the word, it's make sure you deal with elders in sin and do nothing in a spirit of partiality. Nothing at all. Now, you can imagine why Paul says this. I mean, you have an elder who's been in the church a long time. He's done a lot of good deeds. He's, you know, given a lot to the church, sacrificed for the church. A lot of people know him. They think he's a swell guy. And here you are. You've only been at the church, you know, a year and two months. And and you see this elder's in sin and you know he's in sin. And you're thinking, oh, brother, 
if I have to go confront that guy, I mean, they're going to crucify me. You know, that's going to cause a church split. I, I'm, I'm going to be the bad guy. They're going to attack me. They're going to whatever. And all this fear of God, men. The fear of men is a snare. So it is in this case. And that's why Paul says what he does to Timothy and to us here. I charge you. Now, Paul could have used just a basic word that means I charge you. But he didn't. He actually used a word that meant solemnly charge. Now, if he just said charge, being an apostle, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, being God's representative and speaking the words of God, that should be enough to make us shake in our boots. But instead, he uses a word solemnly charge or very soberly and seriously, I am telling you. It means to assert, to declare, to insist, to emphatically state, warn or admonish somebody. I solemnly charge you, Timothy. Now, that would be enough to just make you pass out with fear. I mean, to think that the Apostle Paul would write you a letter in his own hand and say that. It's for everybody to read. All the rest of the church would know that Timothy was solemnly charged. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps adding on, and this whole charge becomes a five-fold command. He says, and, it's not only a charge, it's not only a solemn charge, it's a solemn charge in the presence of God. Why does he tack that on there? Well, do you remember what the author of of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.13? That there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's actually a hunting term, which means you are gutted and filleted out before God. He sees right into your very soul. Timothy, God is watching you to make sure you obey this command, to make sure you deal with elders who are in sin. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28? Speaking to the disciples about the persecution they would receive from other people as they went out to preach the gospel. He knew they would be like sheep among wolves and they would be hated on all, by all men on account of him. He said this, I warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, if you have a man over here with a gun threatening to shoot you, and God's word over here commanding you to obey him, and this guy's saying, don't do it, and God is saying, do it, then you run towards the gun. Because it's better to deal with the bullet than it is to deal with omnipotent fury for eternity. That's what Jesus said. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 8.13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Notice again what is driving this fear. The holiness of God. The holiness of God. It is not only a charge and a solemn charge and a solemn charge in the presence of God, but it is also a solemn charge in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. He tacks on another one. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. It is he who is the Lion of Judah. It is he whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And it is he whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given to. And so Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, I'm charging you. I'm really charging you. And God is watching you. And Christ Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, is watching you. And you know what? So are his chosen angels. And he throws that on the end just to finish it off. All the holy angels who are in heaven are all watching you, Timothy, to see if you are going to submit to the word of God or not in this area. And I would say the same thing is true of me and of you, especially those of us who are elders. God is watching us and he is saying, are you going to do this or not? Christ is watching us. Are you going to do this or not? The chosen angels are watching us. Are you going to do this or not? 
because it's so difficult to bring an accusation against an elder, Paul lays out this five-flanked charge to make sure that Timothy does not hesitate. The church must maintain these principles, notice what he says, without bias, doing nothing from a spirit of partiality. The word bias means to prefer one before another or to discriminate. The word partiality is a similar word. It means to show favoritism or partiality to one over another. It's a sin to show partiality. Well, yeah, but this guy, he's been here for so long. He's served so long. He's taught so many classes. He's, He's done so much good. He's led people to the Lord. Listen, you set all that aside. You don't take that into account the least little bit. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter what position he has held. Without partiality, without bias, as if he were a brand new member of the church that you don't know anything about, you go to him and deal with him. Because that's what the Word of God says. Now, the church hopefully would not have to do this ever, or at least very rarely And Paul wants to make sure Timothy doesn't have to go through this as a regular habit. So that's why he says what he does in verse 22. Look at there. You should be careful who you appoint to the office of elder so you don't have to go through this misery. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share in the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now, we already learned from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 that elders are to have all these qualifications. We learned at the begin- in chapter 4 and a big chunk of chapter 4 that they were to be doing all of these things, practicing godliness. 1 Timothy 3.6 says he's not to be a new convert. Here, it would say not too hastily, so maybe the guy is an old convert, but he's new to your congregation. And at first you think, man, this guy's great. And, you know, some people come into the church and, hi, you know, I'm in here. You know, I've been an elder at such and such a church. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't really want to serve anywhere else. But when you're ready to appoint me to an elder, you know, I'll be fine. Not too hasty. If he's not willing to do little things, he's not to be entrusted definitely to the office of an overseer. You have to look at their life. Do they have a pattern of godly character? They have a pattern of teaching, sound doctrine? Are their children under control with all dignity? Does the, does the man love his wife and cherish his wife like Christ does the church? Is prayer and reading and studying and meditating in the scriptures part of his normal everyday life? If not, he cannot be an elder. So whatever you do, don't be hasty, Timothy, because if you're hasty, what happens is you may appoint somebody who flames out and then you're going to have to go through the process I just commanded you to go through and you know it's going to be a misery. Look at verse 22 again. The text tells us that by putting an unqualified elder into a position of leadership, you share in the sins of others. In other words, when the elder board says, you know, let's put this guy, well, he hasn't been here very long. Well, we haven't seen a pattern of God in his life. Well, we don't know how good he's treating his wife. Well, we don't know about his children. But, you know, everybody says he's good and he says he's good. And so we'll just put him in. And when you do that and that elder flames out, you share in the responsibility of their sin. Not only is it a sin to appoint somebody in direct opposition to what the Word of God says, but you share in the sins of those who flame out who are appointed incorrectly or not according to God's standard. So if the elders appoint someone to the office of an elder without thoroughly testing that man, and that man falls into sin, they share in that sin because they are responsible for putting him into a position he shouldn't be in. Now, we get to verse 23 which at first glance seems to just really derail from the text. But I want to show you how it fits in. Look at verse 23, and this is the fifth point. You must obey God above your convictions. Look at verse 23. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, whenever I teach hermeneutics or how to study the Bible... 
Give them this little illustration. If you're standing on a bridge and you, there's a river underneath you and you can't see the water under the bridge and you look upstream and you see the water's coming towards you and you look downstream and you see the water's going away from you, what direction is the water flowing under the bridge? The same direction. The problem is, is in this text, it seems to be going, you know, diagonal. And you look at a text like this and you're going, now, what is this doing here? Did Paul just stop? Did he, did he leave the whole topic of sin? Well, no. If you look at the next two verses, he's still talking about sin. What does this have to do with anything? Well, I think Paul is making this point. He's making this point because Timothy was obviously not following through on the confrontation of sin of elders in the church. But he was following through with some personal convictions he had. He had a personal conviction that he was going to drink water exclusively, even to the detriment of his own health. And I think what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, look at These things I'm telling you are not optional. But, for example, your abstinence from alcoholic beverages is optional. As a matter of fact, why don't you drink a little wine? for the sake of your stomach and your ailments. You're actually harming your physical self because of this conviction you have what the scriptures have not even put on you, but you're neglecting to do the things that are commanded. Now, I'm not banging on convictions. They are good. They are very good. As a matter of fact, every single person here should have convictions. Convictions are those things that are not commanded by the scriptures, but they're areas in your life where you feel you have to do or not do certain things because you have certain weaknesses. Or maybe because you have found certain things, you know, let's say getting up early and praying first thing, um, would be something that you feel is absolutely necessary, where another person says, you know, I just feel like reading my Bible at night is the best time. But whatever works for you, that is your personal conviction, and that's fine. And... When, you're, when you form personal convictions, you have to realize that they are personal convictions and that it's okay to break them. If it's just a conviction and it's not a commandment of God. Convictions are good, but they're never good if they take priority over the commandments of God. And I think that's why Paul throws this in here. He's saying, Timothy... Do these things. Don't neglect these things. Make sure you do these things without bias. Now, you know, you're, I know you drink water only exclusively, but have a little bit of wine for the sake of your stomach and don't die on this hill. Die on the other hill. He's saying you know, you're killing yourself by not taking any, a little wine. Notice he says a little here. He doesn't say, Timothy, go out and get hammered. He says, just drink a little for the sake of your stomach and your ailments. And, you know, what's so funny here is that his commentators go crazy on this section because they're trying to say, well, the reason Timothy was not drinking wine was, and then they all have a guess. The text doesn't say. Some people say, well, it's because he didn't want to be addicted to wine. Like, you know, verse 3, well, he already had the conviction, and so... If Paul hadn't written verse 3 of chapter 3 yet, so that's not a very good one. Well, you know, he didn't want to cause other people, you know, to stumble. Well, that's, you know, a possibility. The problem is everybody drank wine then. It was a common drink. And then some people go, well, it was because he had a Nazarite vow. Well, then Paul wouldn't be telling him to break his Nazarite vow. The text doesn't say. But the text does say he only drank water exclusively. It was harming his health. And in, instead of rigidly adhering to his conviction to his own detriment, he should have been rigidly adhering to the word of God for the health of the church. The sixth thing we learn from this passage is this. You should know which men are qualified to be elders and which are not. And in verses 24 and 25, he gives us this very simple little double statements. They're in parallel. The sins of some men, he says, are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Here he has two statements, two about sinning brothers, two about obeying brothers. 
First two about sinning brothers, these two statements are, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. He says, you know, Timothy, you can look at some men. I mean, don't be hasty to appoint people to office, especially if they have a banner that's going before them saying, I'm in rebellion against God. Obviously, that person's not qualified, so never put that one. But don't be hasty, because some men, their sins follow after. It's kind of like a boat. You know, you, you're going down through the lake or whatever, and you look behind, you see all that white foam. Well, the foam of their carnality begins to rise up to the top, and they leave a wake of first maybe clues, and then kind of evidences, and then just flat-out carnality. And if you were to appoint that person very quickly, maybe somebody comes into congregation, you don't know them that well, you appoint them to the position of elder quickly, then all of a sudden they begin to leave a wake of damage in the church. So he says, some men's sins go before them, and it's evident. Others come after. Now, he's not making a contrast between sins that are evident and sins that are not evident. They're all evident. He's making a contrast between sins that are immediately evident and sins that are evident afterward. Then he says this at the end, or in verse 25, he has two statements. And these, again, are in parallel. We know that because the statement says, likewise also, the deeds that are good are quite evident. You can look at somebody's life and see that they're walking with the Lord, but don't be hasty. Why is that? Because... Some men seem to be walking with the Lord, and they are not. But yet, don't discredit a man because he doesn't seem super godly at first. That's why he says, after that, that those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, he's not contrasting good with evil in verse 25. He's talking about good that are immediately evident and good which are otherwise, that is, come after. You know, some people come into the church... They may be very godly, very humble, and very meek. And if you were to look at them, you might think to yourself, well, you know, that guy, he doesn't seem like much. But then after watching him for a while, that guy really loves his wife. That guy really is disciplined in his reading of the Word of God. That guy can really teach. That guy knows his doctrine. That guy has a good reputation. And after a while, it's evident that he is godly. And that he is qualified to be an elder. But at first glance, you might not see that. So I think all that Paul is saying here is that make sure you don't take somebody on as an elder too hastily. And he gives them these reasons. Some men's sins are evident before, some after. Some men's godliness is evident before, sometimes after. So what have we learned from this text? First... It is never right for the leadership to receive an accusation against an elder except in the testimony of two or three witnesses. They must first be confronted in private individually and then by the two or three witnesses worth the person confronting and then brought before the elders. Secondly, if an elder is determined um, to be an ongoing sin, then that sin is to be exposed in the presence of all for the purpose that the church might be fearful of sinning. Third, when an elder is in sin, the principles of this text are to be applied without bias. doesn't matter who the guy is, how long he's been here, how much he's served and how much he's done for the Lord and how many people he's led to the Lord, without bias, without any partiality, no favoritism. Fourth, to appoint an unqualified man to the office of an elder is to sin... And if that unqualified elder falls into sin, it is to share in those sins. The people who appoint him share in those sins. Fifth, elders as leaders must hold to the word of God before and above personal convictions. And so that's basically what the text teaches us.